The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Good afternoon. It's uh, the 25th of May, 2020, and just past the midday mark as we enter into a confirmed very cold winter. I'd just like to remind all of our listeners that there are those that are most definitely less fortunate than us out there, and we should do our absolute utmost, even though we're in lockdown, to help those that are less fortunate. We'll chat to you more um, about this later in the show, how you perhaps can do your bit to help those in your community. We're going to have a very interesting show today. Um, coincidentally, it ties in with what the President had to stay, say last night, specifically relating to us moving to lockdown three, but tobacco has still been um, banned from sale. So we look forward to chatting to Talita Snakers in a couple of minutes. But before we get there, I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of High FM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're joined today by Talita Snakers, who's an author and a tax and customs lawyer. She worked closely with Provin Gord and Ivan Pillay during her tenure at the South African Revenue Services and was admitted as an, atti- an attorney of the High Court. She holds a master's degree in constitutional law as well as diplomas in exchange control and money laundering. Today's conversation relates to her book, which is now available electronically and will be in all good bookstores from June. It's called Dirty Tobacco, and it takes us into the very seedy world of illegally trafficked cigarettes, which, believe it or not, is more profitable than cocaine, heroin, marijuana, or guns. I can't think of a more topical subject than dirty tobacco today, especially in light of the fact that it's become the most discussed subject in South Africa, especially in light of the president last night maintaining that tobacco sales will still be um, banned whilst under lockdown. Tanita, welcome to the show. Hi, Chad. It's very good talking to you. Thank you. It's great to chat to you. I believe you're all the way on the other side of the world in Indonesia. I am. But the good news is that we have lockdown just like you do. Um, so I feel your pain. Denise, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the intro that's been given by your published by, by the book is is really, really interesting because it talks about how reputable tobacco companies have for decades actually been complicit in cigarette smuggling. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing at the moment in South Africa with the ban of cigarettes is the public at large think that the ban of cigarettes only impacts on the trusted brands, the more reputable companies, and that this has given way to illicit brands to take over the black market. But this isn't strictly Mm -hmm. true, is it? It's absolutely not strictly true. Um, and I think that's why this book is so timely and why I'm so happy that we managed to, to get it out right now. So uh, just some quick background in terms of why I started writing the book. So since around 2013, I was doing some work around better securing the supply chain for excisable goods. So things like tobacco, alcohol, fuel, not for South Africa in particular, um, but for some international clients. And I was absolutely shocked at how easy it really was to smuggle commodities like cigarettes. But more than that, I was absolutely astonished to see the extent to which so much of this was being attributed to large listed multinational uh, companies. So initially, 
I simply wanted to write a book about how big tobacco fuels the illicit market on the one hand, and then to explore why they keep getting away with it. Um, and so as I was writing this, the whole debacle around the supposed SARS road unit broke. And it became quite apparent that a lot of the tactics that I had seen globally were also being deployed in South Africa by big tobacco. And, of course, when we talk about big tobacco in South Africa, um, that's largely uh, British American tobacco and, to a lesser degree, also Philip Morris International and Japan Tobacco International. So, really, what I wanted to do was to try and weave together a story that exposes both the global tactics of big tobacco and to make sense of what was happening in South Africa at the time. Um, and so what we see now is the conversations around who is driving the illicit trade in cigarettes, where do illicit cigarettes come from, is now so pertinent. Um, and like I said, I, I think the book is coming at exactly the right time to answer many of the questions being bandied around now. Well, there's a couple of points I'd like to make that are very valid. Firstly, as an attorney, um, I like the way that this book has been laid out. You give your argument, you give the playbook, and you then come to a, a point in the book where you allow viewers or, or, or readers thereof to make their own findings thereof. And and, and it's, 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 it's absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure whether you have a passion for magic, but also the way you've entitled <laughs> your chapters, etc. It takes me back to the days of Mario, the magician in the 1980s, with his Kilioi, mm. Kilio Dai, and Sidar. And it seems like, exactly. Yep, it seems like we have been victims of a major, major ploy. I asked Johan von Lochrenberg, who has has written extensively about this, why your book would be different about everything that has been written and why people would want to read it. And his answer was was yeah. this, and I quote: "My books, Rogue, Death, and Taxes, um, and Tobacco Wars, dealt with the granular aspects of the state capture of SARS." And how does people directly associated with the tobacco industry that cracked open the doors at SARS and then how the state capture gang capitalized on this? From there on, it was one crowd mm-hmm. operating in tandem with another. All along, they fooled yeah. the country, and this was because it was multifaceted and complex. And he goes on to mention the various aspects of state capture. He then talks about mm-hmm. your book. He says, what Dirty Tobacco demonstrates is something at a much broader level. It shows this type of regulatory capture on a worldwide scale. Many case examples mm-hmm. all over the world, the sophistication, the fact that they are true organized crime in the real sense, corrupt to the core yeah. and over a long period. What it also shows how vulnerable governments are to this and developed and developing states, and most importantly, how vulnerable uh, law enforcement agencies and customs, tax and customs exercises are now. In your book, mm-hmm. you broke down the Australia KPMG industry-funded assessment, and you talk about China and other countries. Are what we're yeah. seeing in South Africa a worldwide phenomenon? Do we see this in most developed countries as well as developing economies? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that really stood out for me as you go through the different case examples is that Big Tobacco has developed a playbook. And it's a playbook that they use in every single country that they operate. So the first thing that they do is they, um, so for instance, in America, Big Tobacco spends $940,000 an hour on marketing. And they use that to buy them clout in the media. So the first big secret that Big Tobacco has rolled out in terms of this kind of scenario is they very much control what we think 
about illicit tobacco and about big tobacco's role in that because they control what we read. So if you look at um, the media articles that South Africans have been bombarded with, we know um, that Big Tobacco has told us um, that South Africa is in the top five countries with the most illicit cigarettes. Turns out that's not true. We know that Big Tobacco has been telling us that illicit trade is going to cost South Africa as much as 72,000 jobs. Turns out when you do the math and you do a bit of research, that's not true. Um, Big Tobacco has loved telling us that illicit trade should be laid at the feet of some of the smaller independent tobacco manufacturers. And again, once you start looking at what the data actually tells you, that is not necessarily true. So why do they need to influence and control the way we think and view big tobacco? Well, because they themselves have dirty hands, because they have had their hand in the cookie jar. And what's shocking is the extent to which they have been caught out red-handed, the extent to which they have been fined in terms, you know, billions of dollars of fines, and they still continue to operate with impunity. So that's something that we see internationally and that we see locally. Um, a third element that Big Tobacco has really perfected is um, positioning themselves as both the victim of illicit trade and the savior from it. Um, so we know that our law enforcement agencies, you know, whether it's SARS or whether it's the police service or whether it's an agency in almost any of the other countries we look at, they have limited capacity. They have limited funding. We know that, for instance, in, in most countries, um, excise duties only amount for around 2% of the taxes that the typical revenue agency collects, which means it's become a bit of a red-headed stepchild. Government is simply generally not investing in excise and customs administrations. And so what happens when when our agencies want to investigate something is they become dependent on the industry to give them information. And that's where they start capturing our law enforcement agencies. We're chatting about the book Dirty Tobacco to the, with the author Salita Snakers. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about how the supply chain management of tobacco is actually regulated, whether South Africa is in fact a signatory to the Global Illicit Trade Protocol, and how does the tobacco mm-hmm. industry supposedly self-regulate. We're going to be back straight after this. Huh. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Well, yes, this lockdown sure has changed the way we do things. Today we're chatting about dirty tobacco to the author, Talita Snakers, who was a attorney for SARS and dealt very closely with the likes of Praveen Gordon and Ivan Pillay. Um, as you all know, Praveen at the time was the commissioner of SARS. Um, going back to what we discussed just before we went to break, um, you, mm-hmm. you, you, Emphasize in your book the need to regulate supply chain management. You talk about in one instance and you use a great analogy of toothpaste and how toothpaste have a, a far mm-hmm. more secure supply chain. And you even refer to an issue at a stage, may not have been South African related, but at a stage where 8 billion cigarettes had been poisoned mm-hmm. 
not Ooh. not deliberately, but due to the, the fault in the fact that there was no correct um, management of the production line. What do we mean by supply chain management? What do we mean by regulating it? And what what is the global illicit trade protocol? Those three questions. Right. So let's start with something simple. When a tobacco manufacturer manufactures a pack of cigarettes, um, that pack would typically be destined for a specific market. So either it would be destined for the local South African market or it would be destined for an international market. And this is exactly where you get to cheat on your taxes because you only get taxed on what is um, sold on the local South African uh, market, right? So that's really how you start playing with your tax liabilities. Now, um, the, the, the simple part of the solution is that when a tobacco manufacturer has made a pack of cigarettes, we need the ability to know that that pack has ended up where it was supposed to have gone to. So if it was supposed to be in South Africa, we need to have some kind, some way of validating that the pack had in fact ended up in South Africa or alternatively that it had ended up in um, Botswana or wherever it was destined to go. Um, so what we see is there are very few ways that allows us to do so. When we look at the tobacco supply chain more broadly, um, we know that tobacco manufacturers need to um, get certain input products into their process. So they need um, cigarette papers. They need tobacco filters. They obviously need raw tobacco. So the first thing we would want to know is how much of this raw um, material is actually going into a factory. Because if you know how much raw um, you know, production material is going into a factory, you can begin to calculate how many cigarettes were actually manufactured. Right. So in South Africa at the moment, um, we do not actually control the volumes that go into cigarette manufacturing companies. That makes it very easy for them to get away with undeclared production. We don't know how much tobacco went in, and therefore it's very difficult for us to assess how many cigarettes should theoretically have come out of um, the factory. Once we look at the factory itself, of course, we need to introduce some kind of production control. So we need to have a counter on a machine that tells us how many cigarettes were actually rolled and were actually packaged. So the second element we look at when we talk about supply chain security is uh, production control thing that actually counts the number of cigarettes because if we know the number of cigarettes that were made, then we know how much tax should be paid. And then as the packs leave um, the manufacturing premises, we need a way to somehow track that pack um, to the market where it's supposed to go. And if a policeman or a customs officer finds a pack, whether it's in a warehouse or in a supermarket, they somehow need the ability to trace that pack back to the manufacturer. In SARS, in, in South Africa, we don't have the ability to do any of that, um, which this, is why. Sorry, no, carry on. So this is why our customs officers and our police officers to a large extent are really, you know, fighting with their hands tied behind their backs. Now, to get back to um, one of your questions when we started, 
um, is that, um, you know, so, so what is this um, protocol that we're talking about? So the World Health Organization was really worried about the smuggling of tobacco. And very simply, because cheap tobacco means that more people smoke. So that's why the WHO had an interest in it. So they um, published and promulgated a um, framework convention on tobacco control, to which South Africa is a signatory. And under um, this protocol, countries have a number of obligations. So it includes that you need to um, license all of the players in the supply chain. It includes that you need to introduce production control measures, that you need to introduce traceability requirements throughout the supply chain. It also has a number of, you know, interesting things like um, we should expect of our tobacco manufacturers that they employ know your customer uh, protocols. Um, you know, our banks insist on know your customer protocols. And what we want is for tobacco companies to do the same thing so that they know who they are on selling their cigarettes to. And right now, South Africa pretty much doesn't comply with any of the obligations under this protocol. Well, you say in there that there is no legal liability in terms of KYC requirements. Um, cigarettes mm-hmm. can be sold on bulk to, to middle men and they then themselves can on sell to the, to the illicit market. But I think this is the part yep. that, that people need to understand is that it's the illicit market that everybody confuses with counterfeit cigarettes and with smaller operators. And you go on to say that big tobacco actually exaggerates the impact of illicit tobacco. Why would they be doing mm-hmm. this? Oh, it's it's a fascinating conversation. And initially, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it, but it actually makes perfect sense. So, um, big tobacco, well, any tobacco company really, wants smokers to continue smoking. The last thing big tobacco needs is for fewer people to smoke, right? And one of the things that we know influences people's decision to smoke or not is um, high prices. So the minute um, cigarette packs become too expensive, um, there is necessarily a percentage of people who would um, switch back, who they'd smoke less, or they'd simply stop smoking. So big tobacco has an interest in um, making sure that uh, the prices of tobacco packs remain affordable. And so what they do is to argue that Increasing the tax rates on a pack of cigarettes um, is simply a way of driving the illicit trade in cigarettes because they say um, with high prices, people are more likely to support the illicit trade in cigarettes, which comes with lower prices. And so they argue that governments should not be increasing tax rates. Uh, because it will simply drive people into the black market and into illicit channels. And that's why you'll see in South Africa there have been virtually no real um, excise duty increases on cigarette packs. Um, our excise duty um, percentage on a pack is now 52%. The World Health Organization recommends a minimum um, value of 80% of the price that should be taxed. And so for a long time, We've seen the tobacco industry in South Africa in particular playing to this argument that government shouldn't increase tax rates because that increases the price and that simply drives people to the illicit market. We we read in the book about um, public relation firms and organizations that try um, sell this perception 
of the illicit trade, etc. And you refer to, to AstroTurfy. You also refer to the whole David and Goliath scenario where you've got people that are playing up as being the Davids in this massive battle. Um, but it's Ooh. put into a, a manner and fashion that makes us um, realize that perhaps some of these Davids aren't in fact the Davids they make themselves out to be. Would you like to elaborate a bit on that? Well, initially, when I started looking at the whole David and Goliath scenario, I was actually thinking about um, our law enforcement agencies, our customs agencies, trying to take on this behemoth that can outspend them, that can outlitigate them, and that can outmaneuver them. Um, so it was it was really intended initially to look at this dynamic between our governments and big tobacco, um, but also I think there's a very interesting dynamic in terms of um, the David and Goliath dynamic, when we look at players like, um, say, Adriano Mazzotti, as an example, um, you know, when we read newspapers, when we read um, some of the comments in social media, um, everybody seems to have heard of Adriano Mazzotti. Everybody seems to have an opinion that he is the axis of evil and is, you know, the big contributor to illicit tobacco in South Africa. Um, and so, you know, someone who is actually a bit of a David has become um, a character that we tend to view as a Goliath in the industry, when in fact there might be other dynamics at play um, that make us view him as more important than he potentially is. I have some theories on, on why that would, would be the case. Um, you know, I, I think there are many other small players that are far more prominent, that have been far more directly linked with um, illicit trade than someone like Adriano Mazzotti has. Um, and yet, you know, his name is the one that's held up. And there's a very interesting story behind that um, that I think is worth exploring. So we talk about Mazzotti, we talk about Wingate Pierce, um, and we talk about others that have been involved, like Carl Phillips. But then we've got stories that date back literally decades. To give an example, mm -hmm. um, Henny Dalport, who we all know as Highway Henny, mm -hmm. is meant to actually yes. be back in court tomorrow to spend four mm -hmm. days on the stand. But due to lockdown, this has been postponed till end of June. This has been yep. a long matter, and we don't, and, and the, the the public don't seem to know much about it because the media have obviously lost interest. But I think it yep. dates back maybe seventeen, eighteen years. What is what happened yep. there, and why has it taken so long to reach fruition? I think there are a number of reasons. The first one is, you know, in any complex legal matter, it generally does tend to take time. So in the book, I refer to Highway Henny as um, the Tigon of tobacco. You know, Tigon took, I don't know, 20 years to, to come to court. So sometimes in complex matters, um, it does take lo a long time. But the second thing is I think there were so many peripheral issues between Dalport and SARS that kept on sidetracking the kind of the key central issues. So they were constantly litigating on the sides, um, trying to, um, you know, sort out peripheral issues before they could really get to some of the main charges against Delport. So, you know, in the book, one of the things I, um, I explore is that, um, interestingly, back then, um, so I'm talking, I don't know, a good 15 years ago, maybe more than that. Um, this was the only time that I am aware of where a judge issued 
a search warrant against SARS. And the reason that they issued a search warrant um, for SARS officers was because there were allegations that British American tobacco had been colluding with SARS to take Henny Dalport out as a competitor. And that's something that I explore throughout the book is the extent to which Big Tobacco uses their connections with law enforcement agencies and far beyond that to take out competitors. Um, so coming back to why is the Dalport matter taking so long, I, I think it's a matter of simply they, they had a number of peripheral issues. And also something that, that I touch on in the book is, you know, if any Dalport had been smuggling shoes and hadn't been stepping on British American tobacco's toes, um, is there a chance that perhaps SARS would have, you know, issued an, a tax assessment and would have, that would have been the end of the matter? So, um, historically, to what extent is all of this focus on Henny Dalport because he was smuggling cigarettes that was eating into British American tobacco's market share? To what extent did that drive um, this kind of persistent, consistent and relentless focus on, on Henny Dalport? So that, that leads me to my next question. Henny Dalport has been in court for a number of years. His company's been placed under judicial creatorship. So we now have these other guys out there who are very much in the limelight due to their lifestyles and due to their links to politicians. And now with mm. the lockdown and with people not being able to buy tobacco and other brands mm. becoming available on the market, etc., there's this narrative that's been spread that it's a political ploy to get funding mm-hmm. for certain politicians. I, I mm-hmm. can't see how that would how that would work. But our listeners, after reading social media and hearing these different narratives, are honestly beginning mm. to believe that this lockdown in terms of yep. the restriction or the ban in sales of cigarettes somehow links back to funding of politicians. Did you find anything yeah. in your research that would agree with this? Well, so um, when I was um, in the process of writing the book, um, we decided that it would be interesting to interview um, some of these, you know, people whose names are being bandied around. So one of the people I interviewed was actually Adriana Mazzotti. Um, so, you know, I have some thoughts on this, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an absolute expert on what's happening here. I think the first the first issue is that when we hold positions of responsibility, um, like a minister would do, we need to appreciate that perception is sometimes as important as reality. And so I think that her historical connection with Mazzotti is unfortunate because it will cloud whatever decisions she makes. Um, so, um, you know, is there any truth to the rumor that, you know, she is holding on to the ban because it would benefit people like Mazzotti? I genuinely can't say. But what I did find extremely interesting, and I, I think it, it's, it's an important perspective to bear in mind. When I spoke to, um, to Mazzotti, he mentioned something that I, I thought was interesting. So he has been politically active since he was a teenager. Um, you know, he isn't suddenly funding people like Julius Malema or um, Mrs. Zuma for, uh, you know, just for political gain suddenly. He has been politically active and has developed a very strong social conscience, I think, um, 
since he was a teenager. So that goes back some decades. So I think simply saying that he's funding people um, to get some political benefit from it, um, I, I think um, there might be more to the story than that. And also, you know, when I when I asked him about specifically about um, his relationship with Julius Malema and you know whether there was any political gain for him from funding him, he made a very telling comment. He said, you know, my relationship with Julius Malema has only been to my detriment. Um, I haven't gained from it. Um, in fact, you know, I am, you know, in the eye of the storm when all I'm trying to do is to live up my political ideals of what I think a political South Africa should look like. Um, uh, you know, and I, I think that's, that just puts a slightly different spin on, you know, him suddenly printing caps for an organization when in fact it seems like he has had a political conscience for many decades now. Um, the other interesting thing from that, I think that's in, mm-hmm. No, go ahead. We're going to take a break, but you can finish that thought. Okay. I think what's important is that all of the tobacco companies have um, developed a system of political payments. So um, Goldleaf has Simon Rudland, who supports ZANU-PF. Savannah has Adam Alloy, who is married to Robert Mugabe's niece. Um, ATM with Mr. Kaji had, you know, the Edward Zuma link. Um, Phoebus Apollo um, had their own political links. Um, and then importantly, we mustn't forget that BAT, British American Tobacco, has its own system of political patronage. But what they managed to do was to get the state security agency on their side. So when we talk about patronage, I think we need to understand that it's not a Mazotti game. All of the political, all of the tobacco companies, including BAT, have developed a system of political patronage. Well, you've just taken me to my next point, which we're going to cover after the break, and that is the seedy underworld of intelligence agencies, both private intelligence agencies as well as state agencies, and how they were dragged into this mess. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Chatting to Talita Snakers. Um, and we could talk for absolute hours about her book because it breaks down so much in the tobacco industry that hasn't been covered elsewhere or has expanded on other issues that may have been covered. But most importantly, it takes us into the dark world um, where the issues are not specifically South African. It's a worldwide phenomena. But what we, what is specifically South African is what was outed with regards to the state security agency's involvement in spying, external agencies such as the FSS spying, and even in the book, Talita refers to three moles in SARS having feeding information to tobacco-type organizations. How big was the role that intelligence, both private sector and public sector, played in the whole narrative that, that we saw as an end result of these tobacco issues? I think it was critical. Um, they played a fundamental role. So um, for some time, we've seen some rumblings that at one point the state security agency was seriously considering setting up its own smuggling ring um, to smuggle cigarettes. They say to undercut, um, you know, the players in the industry, 
Um, but so for, for many reasons, as far as I know, um, they were not successful in setting up their own cigarette smuggling ring. But what they did do was, um, for a number of reasons, British American Tobacco managed to develop a very close relationship with the, with elements within the state security agency. And they set up a, um, tobacco task team. And the tobacco task team was largely funded by uh, British American Tobacco, and the targets of the ta- of the um, task team were also selected by British American Tobacco. So, how did they select these targets? Well, they employed a private security company um, who were around, we know of at least 171 undercover agents. The agents included, you know, traffic cops. It included. Um, uh, other law enforcement officers, and it very heavily included staff who were working for their competitors. So they were gathering evidence on um, their competitors, everything from when their machines broke down um, to what time SARS left their competitors' premises. They had access to their competitors' Wi-Fi passwords so they could actually log into their security cameras. So... British American Tobacco had a lot of um, information on the movements of their competitors, and they were sharing this with their friends in the tobacco task team, which very heavily also included um, the state security agency. And we see a lot of um, their initiatives, if we can call them that, where they try to take on some of their competitors, where the relationship between BAT and the state security agency and FSS, the security company, and um, the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa, which is now defunct, that relationship was completely incestuous. Um, you know, they placed illegal tracker beacons on one of the Carnalink trucks, um, but they would use, you know, a telephone from um, FSS, um, but with a um, SIM card from the state security agency, it was an absolutely incestuous relationship. And I think what's shocking is that um, they were not averse to fabricating evidence against some of their competitors because they were being paid um, only if there were detentions of the competitors' consignments. Um, but there was a there was an absolutely incestuous relationship between that the state security agency FSS and the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa. So tell us about your own trip into this dark world of espionage, meeting somebody in Rosebank, swapping out a thumb drive, finding out more <laughs> about these agents that are that have even admitted to bribery and corruption, like Paul Hepkins, people like Louis Pastana, Francois van der Vestazen, and ex-military intelligence people like. Ewan Duncan, this must have been quite bizarre for somebody who's always acted as a lawyer and acted in the open in respect of of what you have to do. Now you're suddenly participating in these meetings to get intelligence. It must have been bizarre for you. Well, it was and it wasn't. Um, You know, you need to remember that um, I started my career as a prosecutor. Um, and so firstly, I'm, I'm used to, you know, people who are a bit rough, rough around the edges. I've also spent a lot of time with customs officers and they're very rough around the edges. Um, but I was the national head of criminal investigations at SARS, um, for some time. So I think that helped prepare, 
me for, you know, dealing with people who have scary reputations. But also, I think something that helps is that, um, you know, with time, I've come to realize that, you know, people are simply people. And whether they are, um, you know, highly um, incriminated smugglers um, or whether they, you know, simply spies or simply people who are sitting on a treasure trove of information. There's a human, there's an element of, of humanity behind it. So I think it's this combination of having been around criminal investigations for so long, um, but also having learned that as long as you approach people as humans, you, you actually end up um, developing, I suppose, an element of operational trust where people are willing to give you information. Time's running out from us, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want you to break down for our listeners how the illicit tobacco market has impacted on their lives directly, what the impact has been on the South African fiscus, and what can be done to prevent this from continuing. We'll be back after this break. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We've had a most interesting conversation today with Talita Snakers regarding her book, Dirty Tobacco, which basically covers the spies, the lies, and the mega profits within the tobacco industry. We could have this conversation not for hours, but for days. Talita, in closing, how has this impacted on our fiscus, and what do we as a country need to do in order to remedy this this very, very, very bad situation? Well, so we know that SARS is losing around 1.7 billion rand a month um, in, um, you know, uh, unpaid excise duties and that. Um, what we'll see, I think, is that this will simply mean over time that you and I will pay more tax. What worries me is that it'll change the market dynamics, you know, that the big tobacco guys will have to start playing even more dirty to claw back some of their market share. But I think what we need to do, very importantly, is that we need to throw our collective weight behind SARS. Um, They need to get their credibility back in the space in terms of better controlling and regulating illicit trade. But I think for them to do that, we need to give them the space and the trust um, that they can, you know, get the job done. So we need in particular for SARS to introduce much stronger supply chain um, control measures, not just because um, it's a requirement under the FCTC protocol, but because that is the only way um, in which, um, you know, we can actually start curbing da- on uh, illicit tobacco. But secondly, we need to do more to follow the money, Um you know, we, we look at a company again like British American Tobacco. Um, we know that they have been, um, you know, hit with really big assessments in South Africa. We know that transfer pricing is on the rise. We also know that companies, big tobacco companies in South Africa, um, there are some rumors around fictitious revenue transactions. Um, you know, and who else did that? Well, that was Steinoff. It was Enron. Um, and all of these things, I think, end up impacting on um, the extent to which SARS, SARS can really rely on tobacco companies to make accurate declarations. So um, I think in terms of what we can do, we need to stand behind SARS 
to really take on the tobacco industry with stronger supply chain measures, but also to be much stronger in terms of following the money, um, which we know is going to places like Switzerland. Um, and then ultimately, I think as South Africans, we are feeling helpless. We are feeling like um, we have no control over what our government does and says. When it comes to some of these issues around tobacco, we do have control. Um, we do have the opportunity to play a positive role in, in shaping um, the country for the better. And I, and I hope that tobacco ends up bringing South African society together um, and that it doesn't create a, a situation where South Africans actually turn on the tax agency as a result of what we've seen happening in the last few months. The book Dirty Tobacco, Spies, Lies and Mega Profits by Talita Snakers covers so much It'll take you into the worldwide phenomena of how tobacco has, since the 1700s, become a commodity that has corrupted so many organizations, so many people, so many governments that it's quite unbelievable. It's a book well worth buying. It's currently available electronically. It will be in all good bookstores around about the 16th of June. It's 304 pages, including annexes, of valuable information written in a way that is understandable. Tilita, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Chad. It was great talking to you. I'll be uploading more about the book on our Facebook group, Confidential Brief Radio Show. Before I leave you all, I'd just like to remind you that there are a lot of people out there that need food. An organization called the Noah Can, which has been set up in our community, which is the Nord, Orange Grove, Houghton Residence, etc., have set up a collection point tomorrow, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. at Patterson Park opposite Norwood Saps. A volunteer will take a contribution from your passenger side of your boot. There's no need to get out the car. They will need anything from milk, rice, tea bags, tins, jungle oats, soap, sugar beans, sugar, soy milk, milk powder, mealy meal, and packet soup. You can also drop off at Nord Spa or at Nord Pick and Pay where there are food collection points. Let's look after our fellow South Africans during this Horrific time. And if you want to know more about why we have this problem with tobacco in South Africa and it's not just supposedly health-related, get the book Dirty Tobacco Spies and Mega Lies and read up more about the incredible author, Talita Snakers. I thank you for joining me today. You've been listening to Confidential Brief live on Chai FM in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM and streaming worldwide via the smartphone app or via chaifm.com.